I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Marie mutsky Mockett, the author of American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming in the Heartland, which is out now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find a full transcript of our conversation uh, in our show notes, as well as every book mentioned today. You can find that over at readingwomenpodcast.com and make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So today I'm talking uh, with Marie about her book. And as many of you know, I've been looking for more books about uh, the middle of America, about the heartland, the Midwest, Appalachia, places that we often don't see covered in a lot of the books out there. And so when I saw uh, Marie's book, I was so excited to be able to pick it up and to read it and to see her perspective as a secular non-religious person heading into the heartland with a group of evangelical wheat harvesters as they travel through um, the middle of America for four months. And so this book also looks at, you know, their faith and what that faith looks like and the kind of portrait of evangelical Christianity and the different uh, denominations within that and her experience going into these different religious services and how they all look so different and how she learned so much about that. It's also about where our food comes from. Uh, Marie's family has a farm in Nebraska where they grow wheat. And so Marie looks at wheat and what kind of wheat they grow in the history of that. And I felt like she did such a good job of balancing all of these different topics within a single book. I listened to the audiobook and she reads it herself and I absolutely loved that experience. So I would also recommend the audiobook if that is something that you enjoy as well. So Marie mutsky Mockett is the author of a novel, Picking Bones from Ash, and a memoir, Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye, which was a finalist for the Penn Open Award. She currently teaches at uh, St. Mary's College in California, and she currently lives in San Francisco. So I really love talking with Marie, and the time just flew by, and uh, she's a joy to chat with. So here's my conversation with Marie mutsky Mockett. Well, welcome, Marie, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to be part of your podcast. I have been doing a series of podcast episodes on, I, for lack, I don't really like this term, but like flyover states, because I am from Ohio and, uh, and I'm also Appalachian. So we've been looking at a lot of different topics in there. And so I would wanted to look more at the heartland. So when I saw your book and like the premise and everything, I was over the moon, very excited. But for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, or, or maybe may not have heard of it yet, um, what is the, what is your book about? Well, you're, it is, it is about a lot of things, but you're right. It is primarily uh, set against the backdrop of a road trip that I took with a group of harvesters starting in Texas and then climbing our way north uh, through Oklahoma and Kansas, um, Nebraska, Colorado, and then we end up in Idaho and we follow the wheat as it ripens beginning in May and then going all the way through September and making a stop at my family's farm, which is located in Nebraska. And the harvesters are um, mostly evangelical Christian. They're very, very 
uh, deeply Christian people. It's a little bit hard to necessarily get access to people like this, but this is um, who was on this Harvest crew. And so we do have a lot of conversations about science and about faith. And I learned a lot about American history as a result. Um, and this is all in the service of uh, learning where our food comes from and and getting the wheat out of the field uh, in time for um, for it to be put in storage so people can eat it <laughs> later on. Yeah. Your last uh, nonfiction title was looking more at your mom's side of your family, looking at the culture in Japan and just a lot of different things in that. Uh, and this one, though, is about your father's family farm, like you mentioned. What inspired you to then go from, you know, your previous book to tackling this topic? Well, there were a number of, of reasons. I, the, I've, I've written two, I had written two books before this and both were set in Japan and really required a lot of Japanese language skills and um, contact with people in Japan and traveling to Japan. And I thought it would be really nice to have a book that was set in the United States that only required the English language. Um, that turned out to be a little bit more challenging, the language aspect, because I was spending a lot of time with um, people of faith who go to church every Sunday, and which is really in a way a language in and of itself that I wasn't so familiar with. So there was a lot I had to learn. But um, wanting to not travel quite so far was a piece of it. But I also, maybe 15 years ago, had first thought, wow, there really isn't a book on farming or on farm country that in this way. And um, I thought, well, a I would like to write one. <laughs> so it was kind of those those things coming together. I really loved reading about farm country and someone uh, who's on a very strict medical diet. I've had to do a lot of research about wow. food in general and just a lot of my own, you know, reading. So I've come to really love books about uh, food and where food comes from, especially here in America. And in your book, you talk a lot about GMOs. And I was surprised by a lot of the information that you shared in the book. Um, were you also surprised researching this book? And I mean, how did you tackle such a big topic like GMOs? Oh, constantly. And, you know, there was so much more that I could have written about GMOs and about this world of organic food. And I went to conferences and I talked to a lot of different farmers who were not in the book. I ultimately, because this book takes place on a harvest route, uh, I focused on wheat primarily. But I mean, if you get into the world of corn or into soy or into the world of farming animals, the, you know, the questions really multiply. was aware that I was going to really sit down and focus and write this book. I decided I had to primarily look at wheat and not other cash crops because the book would have been substantially larger. But I, of course, I was extremely surprised. I mean, I grew up listening to my father and my family talk about farming. And <clears throat> I think sometime in the 80s, I think in an earlier draft of the book, I even said this, the first awareness that I had that there was something called organic food would have been sometime in the 80s. Uh, they were growing organic food here in California where I grew up, but my father was also poking light fun at the notion of organic farming. I think a lot of the farmers that he communicated with were poking light fun at it. So he sort of had 
some sense of it as a thing. Uh, but then when I was living in the city and I was living in New York City for a really long time, I was making my decisions about food based on what I saw in stores, what I heard people talking about, and then occasionally what I would read in the newspaper. And the message was, for me, very simple, that organic food was what I was supposed to buy and what I was supposed to eat. And anything involving the intervention of science was not a good thing. Uh, and I knew that my there was something about my attitude toward food that didn't align with what my father thought, but I didn't know what that was. You know, I hadn't really investigated any of it. So the more that I read in, in writing this book, yes, the more surprised I was. And I think there are so many things that are alarming about the way that our our food is, is made and, and, and packaged and transported. There are also things about it that are extraordinary. Uh, and most of the people who I met, you know, are people who, I mean, this is very hard work. <laughs> food production is very hard work. Agriculture is very, very hard work. But most of the people that I met were really sincere in their desire to make good food and do a good job. And so um, I did feel like that was something that was really important to convey. Yeah, and I I found myself absolutely fascinated. And I've been gluten-free since, I think, 2004. Mm -hmm. um, and so seeing even just that topic around wheat and, and different things, I, I've just been very interested because a lot of times when people write books about food, they never actually talk to farmers for some reason. Right. They, they just, you know, right. go, go forth. And so I really appreciated you actually like just going up to someone who's harvesting wheat, be like, hey, what do you think? And that was something that I'd never really read before focused on, you know, wheat. And I found it fascinating. It's it's challenging. And I, I definitely... Uh, in the course of writing this book, I was aware pretty early on that Eric, who's the main character in the book, who's the harvester, and I guess I did leave out in my description of the book that one of the reasons he was so open to me coming along on this harvest route was because he had he he's a lifelong Republican, he's a farmer, he's a you know has always voted with the Republican Party, but he was very concerned about Trump in 2016. He was concerned that the election of um, Donald Trump would not be a good thing for the country. And this was back when the media was, you know, convinced that there was no way that Trump was going to win. And he would say to me, I'm very worried about this. And I think the election of Donald Trump was one of the things that, that convinced him that he needed to kind of open the door and let me come with him and let me see his world. It's a very insular world in a lot of ways. And that is a theme that you hear throughout the book where people say to me, oh, wow, you know, in New York, they think we're hicks, don't they? They think we're, like, I heard that a lot. So I was very conscious of the fact that people were concerned with how they, people who were involved in, in food production were very concerned with how they were portrayed generally in the media. And so I had to carry that, you know, with me all the time, trying to ask difficult and challenging questions, but also find out what it was they wanted to tell me about their daily experience of farming and of living in this in this world. So I've wandered away from your question. <laughs> but yeah, I think that leads to another question I had about how you went about this project. And very early on in the book, you're very open about the prejudice that you had about this very insular group of people and how you kind of expected 
you know, things to go down or, or them to respond. And uh, what were some of those preconceived notions? And what about your conversations with this group of harvesters and other uh, evangelical Christians that surprised you during your, you know, I guess, road trip? Oh, my gosh. You know, it it's funny because I one of the things that I say in the book is in, in the beginning, as you point out, I say, I know what I'm supposed to think, you know, because I, I lived in New York I in, until this pandemic was living in San Francisco. So I'm kind of aware of what the coastal attitudes are toward the center of the country, toward flyover country. Um, and I'm aware of the, the kind of pejorative things that people say about monocultures and monocrops and you know, why, why do they, why are people farming like that? Or those, those farms just live on subsidies, et cetera. And there's a lot to be said for how farms are run in the United States and the relationship between the farm bill and farmers, et cetera. But there's still a human experience uh, of people who are, who are every day getting up and trying to farm ground um, that I felt wasn't necessarily coming through. So I, I was startled when I would go to farms with the farmers and I could hear the soundtrack in my head of what my, what my responses were supposed to be, what I was supposed to say. I think early on in the book, the first time we go to church in Texas, Eric says, you know, would your, would your friends have liked this church? And I said, no. And I had to say, it's because most of my friends would have thought that this was stupid. And so I say that, and we have a conversation about why um, people would think that church is stupid. And that then forced, put me in the position of needing to, you know, think why somebody might say that, and specifically what the issues are in church or in the, in the clash between our cultures that would render that judgment. And th- the same, I think, would happen with farming, where I would stand in a field of wheat and I, because I've done that since I was a child, find wheat beautiful. But I also know kind of what the responses would have been from from people who would see a field of wheat and think it's, again, a monoculture. I had a lot of conversations with friends who would say, I would like to come and see your farm. And I would say, well, it's not a farm the way that you think of a farm. There, you know, there isn't a farmhouse with a, a barn and then contiguous pieces of property where we're raising crops. There are huge fields of land that are separated by miles, and it can take quite a long time to get from one field to another. And that's how a lot of farming is in the Great Plains. Um, but that's hard for people to understand. And so, you know, I had to sort of process all of that information as I was writing the book so that... I was being open to the information that was being given to me, but also explaining um, what I was seeing so that people who had never been to this part of the country and paid attention to it could see it and understand it and then and then hopefully uh, appreciate it. And I really loved how you wrote the book as this journey of empathy and realizing, you know, for example, there's this moment you're sitting down watching on a Sunday, watching all of these different people. And then you're like, wait, they look like they're from different denominations. And you start asking, you know, what are they? Who are they? Are those, you know, Catholic people or those Mennonites? And I found that absolutely fascinating because that's something, you know, I grew up in a very conservative religious culture as well. And so I felt like, you know, I've done that before. I've sat down and been like, oh, look, here the Catholics are coming on Sunday. You know, oh, look, those are the Methodists. And I, that's something that was part of how I grew up and seeing you go through that journey of like, oh, that's so fascinating. 
yeah, going to the different church services and being like, oh, this is different. And then, you know, whoever you're with is like, yeah, of course it is. It's a different denomination and journey, as it were. What was it like to go to all those different church services and kind of have that happen before your eyes? Yeah, that was absolutely amazing. You know, I'll just say really quickly. So I'm half Japanese. And so, and my husband is from Scotland. And we would sometimes play this game and in Asian people do this where, you, you know, and there's even, I think there was even a test online. Can you name what country this Asian person comes from? And Asian people think they're really good at being able to distinguish between Koreans and Japanese, although that one is a little bit difficult. Um, Japanese and Chinese, uh, Southeast Asia um, versus, you know, Han Chinese. Like for us, we see all these differences and sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference. And my husband would try really hard. He would say like, are they, is that person Japanese? And I would say, no, they're Chinese. And he would say, how do you know? And then I would try to explain. On the flip side, I remember early on when we were dating, we would listen to BBC radio and he would ask me, could I guess the accent? You know, and all I heard was this sort of general what sounded to me like an English accent. And then I had to learn the difference between the United Kingdom and the Northern English accents and the South, the Scots call the people from the South, and that's people from London, have a London accent, which is different than people from Scotland. And then in Scotland, there's the Highland accent. Uh, and then you get into the Commonwealth and people from South Africa versus New Zealand. And he could hear all of these differences, you know, that were over time, I got better at identifying. Well, so there I was in the middle of America with Eric, the harvester, who's been traveling through the United States for 30 years. And for me, it was just like a blur of white people, right? This is, this is sort of one of the ways in which the center of the country is seen. But he had this amazing eye. He would, there was a time, I think early on in the book, I talk about how we see somebody who's pulled over by the side of the road. Um, they're having car trouble. And he, Eric, immediately knows that they're Mormon. And they were. And I thought, wait, how do you know? You know? And he would sort of say, well, they had that Mormon thing. And I would think, what's the Mormon thing? I, di I didn't even know what the Mormons <laughs> were. You know? And I, and I did have some exposure to Mormons as a child because my father had a friend who was a Mormon who we would go see sometimes. But I, I, I thought, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing? You know, and that became interesting to me because that's part of the human story. And there's a scene in the book where we are getting a, an experimental combine delivered to us by the International Harvesters um, Company, which develops these extraordinarily extremely expensive, super sophisticated pieces of equipment called combine harvesters. And there, a guy has driven a truck and we're picking up the combine somewhere in Oklahoma. And he just looks like a guy, you know, in a flannel shirt with like a, a cap. And Eric runs over and says, you have to listen to the way he talks, listen to his accent. Because Eric sees something unusual about this person. And so I went over and talked to him and we're talking a little bit, and then Eric comes over and says, you know, do you hear his lilt? Well, we have one guy on our crew. Uh, in the book, I think his name is Georgie, and he's an old order Mennonite who has uh, graduated from eighth grade, not gone on to high school, who has a similar sort of lilt. And it turns out the truck driver ran away from an extremely conservative uh, I think Amish community and had started his life over <laughs> kind of incognito uh, in Oklahoma. And Eric could figure this out based on the guy's accent. And it just, so that's just one of the details of, of how it taught me how diverse 
the United States is. Um, and you're right. There is a scene where we're sitting in a Brahms diner. Most of the time we had our meals in the trailer, uh, but on Sundays we would have lunch after church uh, at different eateries across the United States. And Eric began to you know, pick out the, the people who were Mennonite and then old order Mennonite and then like very conservative Mennonite and then people who don't go to church. And they did start to look different to me. It was an extraordinary experience and such a huge gift. And I, I feel better able to relate to more diverse people. And, and I think that's always a gift when that happens. Um, and in the process of doing that, of course, we had conversations about how different waves of immigration came into the United States. Um, so my understanding of the, you know, what we call the settlement of the United States uh, deepened, which also has a has a very sad history too, a difficult history. Um, but it was the whole experience really blew my mind and was really very enriching in teaching me, you know, the diversity that does exist in the U.S. And then I would do things like in Idaho, I remember I found a place that had uh, amazing Swedish pancakes, I think it is, some Scandinavian um, family. And of course, that has to do with the the immigration of um, Mormons who came into Idaho and brought this amazing pancake cuisine. Um, so it was fun to look for things like little details like that, um, that talked a lot about how the country was formed and that brought this culture to life and, and made it really a very rich experience. I really enjoyed like going along your journey with you and seeing you discover these things because I remember that scene you were talking about about the man who was driving the truck that um, was from Ha, as we say. Uh-huh. We would go to Amish country every year, and you know that was a big part of you know our family vacations, and we had to do a lot of research. My mom just made it educational, and so we became very familiar with that. We also spent. A lot of time in uh, Lancaster, being that my grandfather's Pennsylvania Dutch. So it was really interesting to hear all of, you know, these parts of conservative Christian culture and you kind of mull them over as someone viewing them from the outside. And I think that that is one of the things that you do so well in this book is not only are you learning this, but you're taking other people on this journey who may not be familiar with these things, and you're kind of examining them. And that was just really interesting, because it wasn't just a road trip. It was kind of like, you know, learning about evangelical Christian America road trip, which adds a whole new layer of interesting things to discuss. Well, thank you. I mean, that was the goal. And I did ultimately realize there was probably something personal at work in that on my American side. Uh, And this is, I say this in the book, but I've come to really think more about it now that this process is over. But my, my grandmother's father was from Lancaster, or his, well, he wasn't, but his ancestors were from Lancaster County. And I never explicitly knew what denomination my family was, but they probably were Anabaptist in some way. I did sort of wonder, you know, is there anything in the in this uh, community or in this culture that I can relate to? Um, and I came to understand that more deeply, but only at the end, at the very, very end, after I had a better understanding of of Christianity, frankly, which I didn't understand at all, I think, at the beginning. I think it was really interesting to see you go on this 
journey with the harvesters. And there's a moment in about um, the middle of the book where you have to go back to New York City for you know, uh, school reasons. And you find yourself like looking around you, like the, the cultural shock is a bit you know, much for you to like adjust to, and you're kind of mentally trying to figure that out. Um, and you also talk about this at the end of the book. So what was it like being, you know, with this group of people for four months and then going back to your regular life in San Francisco and trying to readjust to that? I, so I think I'm for, I'm forever changed by this experience on so many levels, because one of the points that the book makes is that it's really important that we pause and take time to understand other people's stories. And I tried very hard to do that in the, in the course of the journey with this book. Um, and I was very affected by the book or by this experience and my view of how, the world works and how history works is is forever changed as a result, you know, of of what I of what I experienced. Um, and there are things that I experienced that I didn't learn in school. That's and those are always the sorts of experiences that a writer like me looks for because we want to fill in the you know we want to fill in the gaps. I am very I am forever really affected by by this journey. And nothing that I really look at is quite the same. Again, my understanding of city culture, rural culture, my understanding of myself. Um, and, you know, I really am very much the product of a kind of a high level of formal education and the things that I can do uh, as a result of that and the way my mind works and what I look for um, is different. Somebody from my father's background, and the difference isn't just generation, but the difference is also that he grew up on the farm. You know, he has a, a, deg a degree of knowledge and way of looking at the world that is totally different than mine. Um, but I also feel some differences between myself and my peers who didn't necessarily have a, a direct uh, influence from agriculture in the way that I do. So that's something that's uh, impacted me. Um, I think spending time with people who relayed the experience of Christianity to me at all different levels. I mean, people in this book, they're people who go to church because that's what you do, and they unquestioningly go to church and because that's just what's done to people who really wrestle with faith, to people who question um, Justin as the other main character in this book, and he has a major crisis of faith and questions that crisis very deeply. Uh, which was helpful to me as a writer because he would break down what evangelical Christianity is for me so that I, from the outside, could gain an understanding of it through his eyes. And my, so my understanding of that was very deeply affected. And that's a huge, a huge gift because most of the time when we read books about religion um, that talk about evangelical Christianity in America, and they're books that we um, quote-unquote respect by scholars, they kind of look at it outside, examining it as though they were looking at the mechanics of a clock. Um, but for a person who is a Christian who's experiencing Christianity, you know, they're not experiencing it as like the mechanics of a clock. It's a living experience. And so the chance to have that, I mean, that's extraordinary. I think that was a huge, huge gift. Uh, and then realizing that there were people throughout history who had this experience, um, which impacts the way that our history uh, is today was also a huge uh, gift that again has forever changed the way that I that I see everything. 
I really love Justin for that reason and the way that he yes. would be like, these are my people. I know them. This is how they are. And he would just break it down for you. And I'm like, I've met him somewhere like in my life. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. He's an amazing person. He's a really amazing person. And I really appreciate how you examined how the narratives that non-religious liberal people tell themselves about Christianity. Um, there's this quote um, that I flagged, and at the end you say, uh, there is a narrative we follow in the secular world about how someone goes from being an evangelical Christian member of the, air quotes, modern world. And in that narrative, the Christian realizes that the Bible is full of inaccuracies and realizes many of its uh, treasured beliefs are false. And what you look at at the end of the book is those in-between spaces, the people who, like like Eric and, and like Justin, who are kind of more middle of the road in the sense that there is no big either or. There is still space for their faith in their life somewhere. They just have to figure that out. And that's something I really appreciated because whenever I have conversations with people about my background or anything like that, they always assume that I've like seen the light and converted almost to this liberal idea of what life should look like. And so I always found it interesting um, having those conversations, but you kind of do that at the end of the book. And it was such a I know I underlined so many things. <laughs> oh, I'm really gratified to hear that. One of the things that I think a lot about is what what is it that we think the default narrative is, and we definitely think that there is a way that people are supposed to interact with if they grow up with uh, any kind of conservative Christianity that is repressive, right? And that's the narrative that you get in the city. You get the 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 narrative is that very intensely religious cultures must be repressive in some way and that there's nothing redeeming about it. And, you know, and part of the reason why people think this is because we, we who live in the city run into people <laughs> who have that experience, right, who've escaped in some way and want to remake themselves in the city. But I remember early on with Justin thinking, like, I don't know that Justin's necessarily going to completely walk away from his faith. And I, I don't know why, but that's just what I think. And I think to say that people don't turn away from their faith because they can't escape the brainwashing, which is sort of the standard judgment that's leveled, I think, against people of faith, uh, is wrong. So there must be something in the basic assumptions that I have about what's going on that, that is also incomplete. I also say that about science, right, where there are things in science that we can't account for, like there's the particle wave experiment that I described briefly where we don't know at the quantum level exactly what happens. Uh, and one of the things scientists say is, well, the, the model that we have must be incomplete. I've always thought that that was fascinating. And I think that that's probably partly true uh, in our understanding of, of what people's relationship is with, with religion. To say that, well, if you're a mature person, you will get rid of religion and you will become a believer in science and you won't believe in this nonsense anymore. There's some assumptions in that that I think are faulty. So that I that is something that I did try to uh, take into account toward the end of the book. And I think I think it is true. I mean, I keep meeting Christians who are uncomfortable with saying that they're Christian because they're aware that that you know that of of what the judgment might be against them. Um, it's become really hard, even if you're a very very liberal Christian. I think to say that you're a Christian. This is my observation. I could be wrong, but so I wanted to capture some of that com complexity. 
That's, that's, let's say, that's definitely a thing. <laughs> well, and the other, I mean, I think the other thing that I've come to realize is that, you know, this question of what is Christian, and this I did not know at all until, you know, the other day somebody said, can you encapsulate really quickly what the lessons are from the book uh, vis-a-vis religion? And I, I thought, wow, no, I can't. <laughs> but I mean, one thing that I can tell you that I did not understand this question, right, of what is Christianity uh, is, is historical. It's been going on for hundreds of years. People are convinced they know. People say, wait a second, you don't know. I mean, and that was that very basic lack of understanding is one of the things that led to the Reformation, right? Where there were people in Europe who said, wait a second, this thing that we're practicing through the Catholic Church is not what Christ meant. So here we are hundreds of years later still having this same argument. So I didn't understand that this was historical, but that's also given me a tremendous sense of peace to know that, oh, you know, people have not understood this for centuries. Christianity looks so differently, I mean, depending on how it's practiced. And I really appreciated fiction writers like Marilyn Robinson tackling a lot of the topics that you tackle in this nonfiction way um, in her novels, the Gilead I guess now it's a quartet. I've, I just love those. And so it's really sparked a lot of conversations when I go back home and talk to my own community um, about different things. One of the things I really love is that you have respect for different expressions of faith, right? And so you go to so many different churches and you go in and you're not going in trying to change people. You're more like trying to remain this observer. And so it was really interesting, like there is a girl who asked you some questions about like doubting her faith and you're like, well, I don't feel comfortable telling you anything. And then Justin's like, she was asking for help. Like she was, you know, yes. reaching out with an olive branch or, or whatever to try to have some of her questions answered. And that was really interesting to see that dynamic of you trying to remain like a non-influencer, but still having an influence. Yes, I was trying very hard. I was very... I was very conscious of that. There are a lot of people who probably would have gone in hard in that situation. It's not in my nature to do that. This is where I like, oh, I guess maybe that might be partly a Mennonite thing without me even knowing that that's a Mennonite thing because they don't tend to try to convert you, you know? And I did not grow up going to church, but temperamentally, uh, is it possible that I inherited some of that? from, you know, like that's in my roots. That's part of my behavior, my family behavior. I mean, I don't know. Um, it could just be my, my personality and my temperament. But it's like I said in the, in the beginning of the book, I knew what I was supposed to think, um, but I also suspected that what I was supposed to think was not sufficient information. Um, and so it didn't feel right to, to take these opportunities to go in with a sledgehammer. You know, and there, every now and then people are unhappy with me that I didn't. But I also know that you can't uh, form relationships with people and understand their point of view if you don't let them talk, <laughs> if you don't take the time to listen. Um, and there are some, especially toward the end of the book, there are some moments that are really deeply uncomfortable where it's hard for me to, where, where it becomes kind of clear, I think, where some of the, where there are places where we do sort of need to, people who are ethical and um, want to do the right thing where people do need to take a stand. But I wasn't at all clear in the beginning of the book. I was really trying to just collect more information until I had a, a clear enough of a picture to know kind of like what I was really dealing with. And I 
think those conversations that you have with Justin that you recorded in the book, and I imagine there must have been like so many more and you had to like decide like, you know, what ones am I going to include? But uh, I found those conversations really fascinating because a lot of people, when they discuss faith, you know, they have this idea that the ideal progression of human evolution, it, it doesn't include faith, that faith is a superstition and it doesn't belong in our culture. Right. You know, that's obviously a disservice right. to faiths all around the world, not just Christianity. And so when you have those conversations with Justin, it's like you're kind of figuring out what parts of faith are going to remain and and what is kind of Justin's next evolution of his faith and what that may look like in, in the future. Yeah, it's and this is when I was saying that everything to me looks different now as a result of this experience. So, for example, one of the things that writers and poets say um, is that war is a lack of the imagination. And when I was younger, that would have just meant war is a bad thing. <laughs> it's a really profound statement. I forget which poet said it first, but in other words oh, war is a lack of the imagination. When we cannot imagine another solution, uh, we resort to war. And so Justin and I have now had a lot of conversations about what this means. And he'll say to me, and this is not in the book, you know, these our conversations continue. But he said to me, he said, it's really hard to take that position if the enemy has an assault rifle, right? What is the point of being a person who can't fight back if you're fighting against an enemy who's armed? That's a, It's a very profound question. And, and I immediately agreed with him. And then he said, but on the other hand, if all we do is fight back, then we just get Cain and Abel, and it keeps going. And the Bible is full of stories of brothers who are fighting. And American Harvest, uh, unintentionally, um, is full of stories of, of siblings and brothers and cousins who don't get along, uh, who have conflict, because that's, so, that's, a, that's such a so basic to the human story. So there has to be a way to imagine a world or behavior that puts us on a different path. And I really do believe now, like with a kind of intensity and certainty that I did not, I would have sort of had before, but definitely have now, that I mean that that is the work of, that is the work of faith and that that is the work of committed artists is to imagine what that way and that world might be. And I didn't understand that prior to this experience. You know, I would have, I would have sort of, sort of generally been like, "Yay, peace! Of course, we shouldn't fight." You know, but I really get it more clearly, and and that is one of the gifts of this experience. And I and I don't know how else we access that path, that path that we imagine, other than through through art and through people who are truly committed to faith, right? I mean, I think that that's what that that's what faith is for. So. I really feel very strongly that people who think that faith is about trying to explain how the world works, that's a distortion. That's not, you know, that's not the, that's not the point at all. <laughs> the point is to sit very deeply with how can we create this world where we don't go around killing each other. It's very well put. I'm like, I can't top that. Like there's just like, like mic drop, mic drop right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, thank you for listening and for, you know, for receiving what I have to say, because, because that's, you know, that's not, that's not everybody's reading experience, but that's sort of where I've come to. And I, it's nice to be able to, to talk about that with somebody who, who hears it. 
So the last question that I have for you before I let you go um, is you have written this beautiful book about um, a part of America that I feel like is often, is not really uh, tackled uh, all too often in our national conversation. So what other books would you recommend maybe that you read while you were um, researching the book or um, just have come across since uh, that you would recommend to people wanting to learn more about uh, the middle of America and what that looks like? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I think, and I, I think there should be more, there should be more books that come out from voices from people who are actually from the heartland. So obviously Sarah Smarsh's heartland, um, she is, she is of the place and has written about it. So, and I know that that's a, a, a book that's very widely read, but justifiably so. And Liz Lenz, who's the name of her book escapes me at the moment. Godland. Godland, yeah. And what else? Well, Ted Conover's book, I think This Blessed Earth, which uh, focuses on a year of a family farm uh, in eastern Nebraska. Ted lives in Lincoln and, again, also writes of the place. So those are, those are books that this book is probably somewhat in conversation with. Um, but I was also really interested and became very interested in aspects of American history and how the Homestead Act was enacted, which then divided up the territory, what we called the, you know, the, the territories into these different, well, we then broke them down into state names like Nebraska Territory, Kansas Territory, um, before they became states. So I was interested in all of that. And so there's some really interesting history that's written around that. I think the Books by the scholar, I think his name is Mark Knoll, is that his name, who writes about evangelical Christianity. I really like Mary Worthen's book, uh, Apostles of Reason, although I think she is based in North Carolina, but I think her book on um, evangelical Christianity to me is one of the best from like a historian's perspective, but taking into account what the experience of, of Christianity is. Albert Rabateau uh, is somebody who wrote a book called Slave Religion, which uh, looks at slaves who came to the United States who brought their indigenous religions from Africa and then gradually interacted with Christianity. I think it's, I think his work is extraordinary and um, underappreciated and undervalued. So those are some things that have really uh, impacted me in my reading. And then I just got Custer Died for Your Sins, which talks a lot about the, you know, the Native American experience, which is, of course, a, a piece of the a book that we didn't get to talk a lot about, but that is brought into um, the history of the United States, too. Uh, I have written all of these down and we'll include them in the show notes if people would like to go check them out. Um, but yeah, there's so much about your book that we didn't get to talk about, but, uh, I think that just goes to show that there's so much in this book that, you know, people need to go read and there's so many more details there. So thank you for coming on the podcast and, uh, talking about your book. Thank you. I'd like to thank Maria Mutsky-Makat for talking with me about American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming in the Heartland, which is out now from Grey Wolf Press. You can also find the audiobook from Recorded Books. You can find her on her website, mariemakat.com, and of course, all of Marie's information will be linked in our show notes. I'd like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. 
You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on social media at The Reading Women. You can find me at Katie Winchester. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.